young people here today, our teens, and uh, it's good to have you with us. We've heard you had a great week. Alan is is uh, really one of the instrumental people, obviously, in organizing all of this. And uh, you've had you've really had a privilege having uh, Alan t- teaching you all this week. And uh, I kind of envy you. In fact, when I heard uh, that he was doing the teens in the morning, I said, I think I'll, I'll probably go over there and listen to Alan in the morning. The problem is I had to speak here. So unfortunately, I don't like listening to myself. I really wish I could have gone over and, and been there with you teens and listened uh, to Alan. So God bless you. Let's have a word of prayer. And we have a lot to do this morning. We're, we are up against a schedule with lunch and people going home. A lot of people have made plans other things for the weekend. Father, we come to you and ask for your help, for your wisdom, and for your guidance. We thank you for our young people. We thank you for the teens, and we thank you for Alan and the ministry that he has had to them all this week. Lord, I pray that you will bless uh, this final meeting of this conference as we come together this morning and try to pull some things together and uh, make a decision. Everybody, everybody has made decisions and everybody will make some kind of a decision before we walk out of this room today. And help me, Lord, to press that point as I finish my, my message. Uh, thank you for your word today. Thank you for these uh, dear pastors, the leaders of these churches, the people, the support people, lighting and sound and praise band and choir and babysitters and people who have served us meals and There's so much. Thank you, Lord, for Tom, who has uh, carried us around, taken us from place to place, Tom Brockmoyer. And thank you for his uh, commitment and dedication to make this a comfortable week for us, for us as guests. Christ's name we ask these things. Amen. Now, I know that those of you that haven't been with us, um, it's going to be a little bit more difficult for you to see where I'm going. So I'm going to try to do this. I'm going to take a, just a, a few minutes, maybe five minutes, to help catch you up so you know where we are. But if you've been under Alan for just a couple days, you're probably theologically at least two or three years ahead of the rest of us, all right? <laughs> so we know, we know that. So I'm not sure that I have to ha- take a whole lot of time doing this, but I want you to go to the text that we started with on, um, what not, when do we start? Wednesday night, Wednesday night this week, Colossians chapter number three, if you would. Colossians 3. And those of you that have been in here for all these messages at night, they have been great, honestly. And I mean this, and this is a compliment. I could preach any of those three messages. And I don't mean, right now, and I don't mean because they were simple, but because they were clear, they were logical, they were biblical, they were right on point. And if you didn't get it, you need some educational help. That's all I can say. I didn't roll, I, I would enroll in something other than the Bible Institute. Maybe fifth or sixth grade would help you out, something like that. All right? But really, Mark has done a marvelous job in laying these passage, this passage out in the first 17 verses of this chapter. But let me help you just so you understand where we have been going. And now I have the privilege of kind of pulling this all together here and asking for a decision. Look at Colossians 3.1 says, If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above where Christ 
sitteth on the right hand of God. Set your affection on things above, not on the things on the earth, for ye are dead, and your life is hid with Christ in God. It's a little mystical. If you're, if you're not acquainted with the Bible, haven't read the Bible, and you're not saved, or you haven't had some sermonizing on this, this kind sounds a little bit strange. And it is strange, because this is supernatural, what we are talking about. Notice verse 4 says, When Christ, who is our life, shall appear, we are looking for that looking forward to that. Then shall ye also appear with him in glory. The first night on Wednesday night, we talked about spirit baptism. And we went to several different passages, although that's not how Mark framed it, but we went to Romans chapter number six, we went to Colossians chapter number two, we went back to Colossians chapter three, and basically, if I could make one point out of the many good points that were made, we are in Christ. We have been baptized into Christ. I am part of the body of Christ, and Christ is in me. You see where there's a little mysticism there? You say, how's that work out? Well, um, I think uh, Mark said the other night, if you understand that completely, come see me. He'd like to have you counsel him on that. But I don't under understand everything about Scripture, but I do know clearly from the Scripture that I am in Christ. And when I trusted Christ as my Savior, I was immersed into Christ. I was baptized into the body of Christ. That's what spirit baptism is in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. I was put in Christ. And now that I am in Christ, I've not only been crucified with Christ and buried with Christ, but now I'm risen with Christ. And now that I'm risen with Christ, I need to act like it. I need to behave like it. I need to understand that. And if you can get a hold of that principle that you are in Christ, that I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me in the life that I now live in the flesh. I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Many of you have memorized that from Sunday school classes and stuff. Do you understand the impact and the power of that statement. So we talked about that on Wednesday night. Then we talked about things above, what, setting your affection on things above. And Mark led us to, uh, to four specific things that lead us to four specific attitudes and actions toward God. We ought to love God, we ought to know God, we ought to worship God, and we ought to serve God. And that's based on things that we know that are in heaven. And that was his message, a lot of his message, on, when, on uh, Thursday night. He introduced the idea of seven verbs that are in chapter number three, operative verbs that give us instruction in the fact that now that I am saved, now that I am resurrected with Christ, now that I am in Christ, these are the, these are the things that I should do and how I should live my Christian life. These are the verbs that he pointed out. Verse number one of Colossians three, seek those things which are above. Verse two, set your affection on things above. Verse number five, mortify therefore your members, that is your body, your flesh. Verse number eight, put off all these things like anger and wrath and put on verse number 10, the new man. 
And then if you come down towards uh, verse 15, we are to let the peace of God rule in our hearts. Let the word of Christ dwell in us richly, verse number 16. And then 17, whatsoever you do, whatever you do, whatever you say, do it all in the name of Jesus Christ. And what that will do, if you stop and think about that, based on who I am risen in Christ, and these things that I'm supposed to do in Christ, if I will look at everything I do that I am to do it in Christ, that will change my behavior. I will act Christ-like. I will become conformed to the image of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. And that's the goal of discipleship. That's God's goal. A man was created in the image of God. That image will be completely restored in Jesus Christ. Right now, I've got a soul, I've got a spirit, and both of that is those are in Christ. But here's the part right now that is my problem, my flesh. This isn't in Christ. This is corruptible. And young people, teenagers, this is your biggest problem. Your biggest problem isn't the Democrats or Republicans. Your biggest problem is in high school graduation. None of those things. That's not your biggest problem. Your biggest problem is the person you look at in the mirror every morning. And I know teenagers, they spend a lot of time looking in the mirror <laughs> in the morning. I was in the airport on the way here, and there was a young man sitting in a row in front of me. He had his phone out, and he had it on himself. And he just sat there and kept looking at himself, playing with his hair, playing with his nose. And I thought, what, are you, what is this kid doing? He really likes himself. He does. You know what he was doing? He was looking at his biggest problem. I don't know if he was evaluating it, but he was looking at his biggest problem with a smile on his face. How ignorant can you be? Well, anyway. All right. So that, that kind of, and that's a quick, what I just said does not do justice to the last three evenings. I've already said logical, understandable, biblical, right on point. Honest, I sat there and listened. I said, this is great. This is awesome. Every Christian needs to understand what was said here in this auditorium the last three evenings by Mark Trotter. It was done in a, and very intelligent, very professional, and very, well, he isn't that professional, but it was done in a very <laughs> biblical way. If you listen to him preach, he does kind of let things hang out every now and then, doesn't he? We get to know the real Mark every now and then, you know, and he starts <laughs> dancing around up here. All right. Now, I'm looking at the clock. I've got, I've got a, a message to deliver, and I've got to get this done. So now we've heard all this. We've heard this the last three nights. And now you kids, because you're so smart, in the last seven or eight minutes, you just got what it took three hours for us to understand. So you caught up already, right? Yeah, right. All right. Well, anyway. What are we going to do with everything that we've heard? This is how I want to approach this. I want to approach this like I'm a lawyer building a case. I want to bring evidence to you. And I want to put you, the jury, in a position where, when I'm done with this sermon, you have to make a determination. What will your decision be at the end of this sermon? So I'm going to bring some witnesses forward right now, and I want you to evaluate their testimony. I want you to evaluate their credibility, their integrity, and all of those things. 
So let me start here. The first witness I would like to bring to the stand is God himself. The word that I would like to use is the word inspiration. That's how we got this precious book. God inspired his word. You understand that? The word of God is inspired. All scripture is given by inspiration of God. It's the word of God breathed by God. We'll make it as simple as I can right there. If you understand that, you got enough of it. We got this book by inspiration. This has miraculously been given to us. So the first witness that I want to bring forward is God who wrote this book. And this is what God said. Now, let me ask you, is he a credible witness? Yes. Oh, boy. I, do I really have to go any further? We could close here and go for coffee. We could do that if we needed to. But I want to bring God forward. This book is given by the inspiration of God. Now, granted, George Grace or Mark Trotter or anybody in here can take this and read it and get just about anything you want to get out of it. I understand that. So just saying it's written by God, many, many unbelievers would even agree with that to some degree. But that doesn't mean that they would understand it in the same way that you and I would. They wouldn't necessarily get the same thing out of it. But I want to bring God forward. Inspiration. Then I want to bring forward my second witness, preservation. Preservation tells me this, that God not only inspired his word, but he preserved his word. I mean, what if he inspired it and then lost it in a cave in Egypt or something like that? What good would it do me if he inspired it, but I couldn't have a copy of it or see it or put my hands on it or more importantly, put my eyes on it? So God did this. He not only inspired it, but he preserved it. So I'm bringing my second, my second witness forward. God inspired this book, and God preserved this book. How are we doing? Can you buy that so far? I'm not asking you to draw a conclusion and say who's innocent or who's guilty or that yet, but would you agree that the witnesses that I brought forward are valid or uh, meaningful uh, witnesses? God himself. Inspiration and preservation. Here's the third witness that I want to bring forward. The third witness that I want to bring forward is translation. Now, I know largely that this group of people here, you are a group of KJV people. You love the King James Bible, and I do also. So I not only bring forward the inspiration of God and the preservation of God, he'll preserve his words, Matthew 24, 35, but I bring forward a copy of a translation of the Bible that we believe is more than adequate. In fact, we believe that this is an accurate record, 100% accurate record of what God said. It's an accurate, 100% believable, acceptable translation. I don't correct it. It corrects me. You understand that? That's the difference. So my third witness, if I'm not mistaken, I've fallen pretty closely, is my dear brother Mark as he was teaching and preaching. I think everything that went on this PowerPoint, this screen, every verse, every passage was from the King James Bible. Am I wrong? Did anybody see anything different there? So... Well, again, I'm bringing witnesses forward here and I'm trying to build a case. 
We've got God who has inspired his word. We've got God who has preserved his word. And then we have a translation in our language that we believe is 100% accurate. So now we don't necessarily know what it says, but we do believe that what it says is something that was preserved and inspired from God. Okay, can you buy with that? You buy that? Follow me. It gets a little thicker here. Follow me along, all right? So we got a translation. And we accept this. I accept this. I can't, I, I, I don't want to create problems for anybody. But the reason why I accept this translation is because of the history of this translation, okay? There's a lot of Greek texts out there. There's a lot of Greek scholars. There's a lot of different opinions on this word and that word and the other word and what it meant. And is this copy the right one? Or is it Nestle's 25, 26? Is it the majority text three or four? Or was it the Textus Receptus? Or was it, I mean, Luther's New Testament? We can go through lots of different things. We can sit there and we can argue all day on the validity or authenticity of all of those texts. Can't we do that? Some of you are saying, I have no idea what you're talking about right now. But I accept by faith that historically God has used this text. I can't prove that beyond a shadow of a doubt. All I can do is bring forth an opinion as a witness. And this is what we've used. Inspiration, preservation, and a translation. These are the witnesses that I'm bringing forward. Now, we get into interpretation. Ah! It's one thing to read it and know what it says, because I understand English. I've been speaking it most of my life. I've been reading it most of my life. But the question is this. What does it mean? What does it mean? What does the English mean? Enter Mark Trotter. Now, we got the credibility of God. We've got the credibility of God. We've got a translation that has a history. Now I'm bringing forth Mark Trotter. My case is weakening. I want you to know. My case is weakening. I bring forth Mark Trotter, and Mark Trotter comes up here, and he begins to interpret what it says. Isn't that what he's doing? I mean, you read a verse and you go, oh, I didn't get that out of that. I don't know, where'd he get that? You know, and we do that all, I do that all the time. I listen to people, and go, where'd they get that out of that passage of scripture? Now I'm gonna tell you this. I didn't do that one time with Mark Trotter. I knew exactly what he was saying and why he was saying it. Because frankly, I believe what he was saying before he even said it. Now that's two of us. So I'm gonna get in the boat with Mark. So by interp when I talk about uh, hermeneutics or biblical interpretation, I have to trust the witness, Mark Trotter, that what he is saying about the verses on this screen, that he's interpreting them accurately. This is, by the way, what I'm doing right now is what we all do every time we read the Bible. You may have never thought it this way, but this is what you do every time. Why would I read this book? 
because I believe it's God's word. Well, how did it get here? Inspiration. Well, how do you know it's really the one that was inspired? Because God preserved it. Well, what language is it? Is this a good English translation? Well, it's got a great track record over a long period of time. And did you hear that guy, Mark Trotter, up there and what he said about it? Did you have any objections to that? Well, I might not have understood everything and I never thought of it before. But however, what he said makes sense to me. That's where we are. Witnesses one, two, three. And we're a little weaker with Mark. I understand that. But he's number four. Now here's the fifth witness. The fifth witness is application. Now he can interpret what it says. And he can do that accurately. But now what he's going to do is he's going to apply it. And what happens is when he begins to apply it and say, this is not only what it says in the English language, but this is what it means in the English language. And now this is what you need to think about and do about this particular passage of Scripture. Again, we do this all the time. We just don't think of it this way. But this is what you're doing. What a marvelous thing a mind is. What God has given you. And you're going, man, I never thought that stuff. Well, not all of you are all that smart, but many of you are. I understand that. And maybe you'll think of it a little bit differently the next time you read your Bible. But what happens now is application. And, of course, Mark is very much in charge of that because he's up here. He's got the verse. He has put it up here. He's displayed it. He's now interpreted it. And now he is saying, this is how we apply it. But you kind of enter in. You talk about weak witnesses. <laughs> you enter into the, 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 the uh, a whole deal at this point. What happens? Because you look at that and you begin to interpret it too. You hear what Mark says, but you heard something else. You heard something different. You begin to read your life and your understanding of how life works into what the application is of that text. So how does it apply to me? Do you understand that? Now, let me ask you, has Mark been doing a pretty good job in applying it? I believe that he has been. Now, that's not proof. That's not all the proof in the world that you need, to, you need to make a decision, the proper decision. But now we're building a case. Inspiration, preservation, translation, interpretation, application. Let's do a little investigation. Go back to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6 is another chapter in the New Testament that basically gives us the same theological material that Mark was given us from Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 2, uh, and other passages. In fact, he quoted uh, uh, chapter 6, verse number 4. Remember, therefore we are buried with him, Christ, by baptism into death, we're immersed into Christ, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. Why? Because I'm risen with Christ. I should walk in newness of life because I'm Colossians chapter 3, 1, 2, 3, 4. Christ is my life. I'm to set my affection on things above. I'm to seek those things which are above. That's how I'm to live. Why? Because verse number 4 of Romans, I am baptized into his death that like as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we, that's you and me, also should walk in newness of life. The power that resurrected 
Jesus Christ, the resurrection power, is the power, and you heard this at least three times, is the power that is in you right now. You have the resurrection power of God inside. You and I have no good excuse not to reflect the goodness and the holiness of Christ with our lives because we have been given all the tools. Now, we have to carry this body around with us where we ever, wherever we go, and that creates a lot of problems for us to understand. But God has given us the tools to live a resurrected life. So a little investigation as we look around. We see there are other passages in the Bible, and I'm not going to take the time to read through Romans 6, but if you're taking notes, take this chapter and read the whole chapter through. You'll see that this chapter basically is talking about what Marcus preached the last three evenings. So it only re-emphasizes what took place. And speaking of re-emphasizing things, here's another word for you. Witness number seven, reiteration and confirmation. I want you now to go to the New Testament in the book of Matthew. Matthew chapter number 10. Matthew chapter number 10. Now we're going to look at some passages of Scripture, important passages of Scripture that really back up what Mark was teaching us these last three evenings. And by the way, the person that is being quoted here is none other than Jesus Christ himself. So we've got God as a witness. We have the King James and the King James translators as witnesses. We have Mark Trotter, and we is he credible? Yeah, I believe so. We've got you in application. We can find this principle in other places in the Bible. How can this be reiterated, repeated, or how can it be confirmed? So let's look at some other witnesses that present evidence for our case. Look at Matthew chapter 10 in verse number 38 and 39. Remember this. Now look at those, and I'm going to quote again for you Colossians chapter 3. This is the main text of the week. If ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Verse 2, set your affection on things above. Because you are dead and your life is hid with Christ and God when Christ, who is our life? Christ is your life as a Christian. Amen? Whoa, well, it's a pretty good amen. But some of you are not sure about that. And it isn't probably because of theology. It's because of maybe the way you're living. Look what Jesus says in chapter number uh, 1035. I'm come to set a man at variance against his father and the daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me. Set your affection on things above. Now, don't misunderstand me, but my affection shouldn't be primarily on my mother and father. My affection shouldn't, and my wife is here, shouldn't primarily be on my wife or my children. Now, my grandchildren, maybe. But anyway, <laughs> that's not where my affection is supposed to be. It's not mother, father, daughter. It says, he that loveth son or daughter, 37, more than me, is not worthy of me. 
That sounds crass. That sounds crude. You mean I'm supposed to hate my mother, my father, or not love them? No. He's saying you don't love them more than me. My mother is not my life. My wife is not my life. My grandchildren, they are not my life. Christ is my life. Look at verse 38. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me, that is, you must die. I'm crucified with Christ. You need to reckon yourself crucified with Christ. Taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. Look at verse 39. And this statement or statements like it show up six times in the Gospels. And every time they do, Jesus said it. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. You know what Jesus is saying? He's saying you need to die to the things of this world. You need to die to family relationships. You need to die to clothing, cars and cradles, as we heard the other night. You need to die to all of those things. There is nothing in this world that is as important to you as Jesus Christ because he is my life. He that findeth his life, that is, if you go after it and you seek it, you seek fulfillment and satisfaction in cars and, and curios and all those C words. There's some other C words he mentioned. Well, he didn't mention them, but he referred to them anyway. If you seek fulfillment and all that, that's what, that's what finding your life is. Well, I got to live my life. I got to live for me. I got to figure out what this is all about. I got to make a name for myself. I got to be a millionaire before I'm 30. That is the wrong way to look at life. You are trying to find life in yourself. You're trying to find life here on this earth. Jesus said, I am your life. He that loves his life shall lose it. And when you lose your life for his sake, then you find out what life is really all about. Do you understand that? You know why there's so many disenchanted people in this world, people who are dissatisfied and miserable, and they're looking for fulfillment and satisfaction and all this stuff, and they never can find it? Because they're looking in the wrong place. They're looking for, in, for, for fulfillment in the things of this world, in stuff. Stuffitis is what they've got. Jesus says, you lose your life. You don't worry about it. You find your life in me, and then you'll find out what life's all about. That's what the message of Colossians 3.1 is all about. This is just reiterating, repeating what we've heard all week long. Now, I want you to look at Matthew 16. I'm only going to show you a couple of these for the sake of time. Matthew 16. Then said Jesus, verse 24, unto his disciples, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself. Die! Die! Pick up your cross! You need to die! You need to get out of the way! Christ is your life, not your car, not your home, not your job, not your 401k, your retirement, Social Security, that's not what life's all about. Life's all about 
Christ who is our life. And Jesus says, by the way, does he carry any influence with you at all? Jesus. Jesus is saying this. You say, well, I hear you, uh, Pastor Grace, you're the one that's saying it. I'm only quoting what he said. Remember, inspiration, preservation, translation, interpretation, application, investigation, and now reiteration, confirmation. Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, die. For whosoever will save his life, if you want to save your life for yourself, you're going to lose it. And whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is it profited? If you don't think my interpretation is correct, if you gain the whole world and lose your own soul. Jewelry, money, cars, beautiful homes, in the tropics, clothing, the best of everything, meals and accommodations. I've got it all, and I'm miserable. What is life all about? Christ, who is our life. Now, this statement is repeated in Mark 8:35, Luke 9:24, Luke 17:33, and John 12:25. Said this. Anything that Jesus says is important, is it not? Yes. He said it six times. Duh! Duh! Are you getting it? He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that loses his life for my sake, now you'll find it. You'll find out the purpose for which you were created. You'll find the purpose for which he saved your wretched soul here. And you will be the happiest you possibly could be as a human being in Christ. It's not going to happen chasing the things of this world. I don't care if you're 16 or 66 or 106. That is true for everybody. So bringing forth the witnesses inspiration. God wrote it. He preserved it. We have an accurate and dependable 100% translation. The interpretation that Mark gave, as far as I'm concerned, and I think many of you is concerned, is valid. There's no doubt it's credible. The application was giving. We're talking about us. We're to apply this. We investigated it. We looked at other places in the Bible. Is this doctrine any place else in the Bible? And then we've confirmed it with the words of Jesus himself. Not once, not twice, but six times he says, he that loveth his life shall lose it. And, he, and if you don't lose your life, you're just not going to find it. You'll never find out what it's all about. So here's the invitation. I bring forth my witnesses jury, my witnesses, God, inspiration. I bring forth preservation. He kept it. He promised to preserve his word. God, my second witness. Thirdly, he's given me a copy of what he said, an absolutely accurate copy of what he said, in my language. I can read it. I can at least read it. I may not totally understand it, but I can read it. 
So I get help from a fourth witness, someone who says, oh, you don't know what that means? Let me help you, Mark Trotter. Let me help you understand what that means, Mark Trotter. So you listen to what he says. You look at what's written. You go, yeah, that makes sense. Yeah, I don't have any argument with that. Yeah, he's kind of backing me into a corner right now. I think I see where he's going with this message. I'm beginning to sweat a little bit. My underwear is getting awful tight on me right now, you know. Oh, boy, where's he going? Where's he going? Oh, man, maybe I'll just get up and go to the bathroom right now. Get out of here. We look at the Bible, we go to other passages, and it only backs it up. Romans chapter 6 just backs up everything that Mark Trotter said. And then we go to the Gospels, and we're confirmed that this is what it's all about when Jesus says six times, He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake. <laughs> then you'll find it. Then you'll find it. You want to be happy for the rest of your life? Make an ugly woman your wife. No, 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 that's... That song keeps going through my head. I never get that thing out of me. No, you want to be happy for the rest of your life? Some of you old timers know what I'm talking about. You remember that. Here's the invitation. Here are my witnesses. Here are my witnesses. The invitation is examine the witnesses. Got a problem with God? Got a problem with Jesus? Got a problem with the preserved word in your language? You think the preacher was lying to you and twisting the scripture for whatever reason? I don't know. It's time for you. And it's time for me to exit and deliberate. Deliberation. But before you go and deliberate and think about what the witnesses have said, let me read one more verse from 2 Corinthians to you. Would you go there? 2 Corinthians chapter number 5. I love this passage. This is so powerful. For the love of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5. I want you to get there and read it. Something about you seeing it with your eye, it makes a greater impact on your soul when you see it written on the page of God's word. For the love of Christ, Christ died for us. He died on the cross. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. And that he, it says, for the love of Christ constraineth us. It compels us because we thus judge that if one died for all, Christ, then we're all dead. You're dead. You're dead. So die. You're living a futile life chasing after the things that your corrupt corpse loves to do you're a rotten body you don't think so well you won't be around to see it but your friends and neighbors will be able to see what happens when you take all that time oh look I've got a double chin or wait it's three chins What's that? Gray hair. I'm getting old? Me? I'm getting old? I don't feel old. <coughs> I don't feel old at all. I feel okay. 
Oh, I think I got gas. I really do. Oh, it's terrible. You know, it just, it never bothered me like this when I was younger. I know, I know. Second Corinthians 5, that he died for all, that they which live, that's you and me, should not henceforth from this day live unto themselves, but unto him which died for them and rose again. So I want to make an appeal as the lawyer. It's we're not supposed to live for ourselves. We're supposed to live for him. That's what Paul says here in 2 Corinthians chapter uh, number 5, on the basis of God's love for us. Deliberate. Deliberate. Now it's time for determination, decision. Innocent or guilty? Innocent, is that what the Bible teaches? Is that what God says? Is that what Jesus says? Is that what the preacher said and interpreted it correctly? Is that what it says with all these witnesses? What are your objections? What are your objections? What are your objections? Bow your heads. Close your eyes. Deliberate. It's time, jury, to make your decision. We're going to call you out in 30 seconds. What's your decision? What is your decision? We've brought forth the witnesses before a group of what appears to be more than average committed Christians. What is your decision on all of this? Now, what is the point? And what is the goal? Transformation. And while you're deliberating, listen to one more verse. Paul writes for this cause also, we thank God without ceasing. Because when ye received the word of God, which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men. It wasn't Mark Trotter. It wasn't George Grace. It wasn't Paul the Apostle. It wasn't Mark. It wasn't John the Evangelist. It was God. It was God. When ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth, the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. Do you believe? Then the word should be working in you. Everybody makes decisions. Thousands of them. Our brother the other last night talked about the song, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, Lord, yes, yes, Lord, yes, Lord. He said there was about 30,000 yeses. How about right now? How about right now? You got a yes? You believe that's the truth? Are you willing to live it out? He that loves his life shall lose it. Lose your life, die to self. And he that loses his life for my sake, Christ. Then you'll find out what it's all about. Father, we come to you this morning. We have to make a decision. We don't have to necessarily raise our hands. We don't have to necessarily come forward. We could. But the decision is being made in our hearts, and that's where it's most important. 
What will we do when we walk out the door? Will we live for ourselves? Will we live as though we're not resurrected in Christ? Will we live like the rest of the lost world that cares nothing about the Bible, nothing about Jesus, nothing about God, nothing about eternity, nothing about spiritual life? Will we live like them or, we will, or will we live the way Jesus has commended us, commanded us, and set the example for us to do? Father, help our young people. This may be a very difficult thing. The younger you are, there's a lot of plans in life. Young people think they have a lot of experimentation yet to do before they settle down. Help them to understand this. And then for us uh, older Christians, older at least uh, chronologically, help us, Lord, to make decisions, to stick with these decisions based on the word of God, which effectually worketh in those that believe. In Christ's name I pray, amen, amen. God bless you.